A couple summers ago, Alexander Goodcane Milk was a high school dropout working at an Arby's in South Dakota, just outside the Yankton Sioux Reservation. I just thought, you know, there's, there's more to life to this. You know, I can't just pay bills and die. Life was going nowhere, and it had been that way as long as he could remember. When I was five years old, my mom took us from the res. We went to, she met this Mexican guy over there in um, El Paso, Texas. And so I was over there. I learned how to be, you know, a Catholic Mexican. He says other people kept trying to tell him who he should be. It happened again when he was placed with a foster family in Arizona. And I learned how to be a, a white Christian. Eventually, his mom took him back to the reservation. But because he hadn't grown up there, people treated him like an outsider. You know, I never participated in powwows. You know, I never um, sang songs, went to ceremonies. I was just completely disconnected. He stayed in high school until he was 21, and he still didn't graduate. But then, after another day at a dead-end job, he got a ride home from a friend. And so he starts telling me all about what's going on in Standing Rock. Standing Rock, where thousands of people camped and protested at the end of 2016 to fight an oil pipeline. After that conversation with his buddy, Alexander Goodcane Milk quit his job, said goodbye to his girlfriend, and drove up to the protest camp just outside the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. So when you first go, you see, is this just like, looks like a little prairie land, and you can smell campfire, and you can smell burning sage, and you can see teepees. Teepees, you know, like you don't, you don't see that, but like at Powos, and this were people actually living in them, not just for show. He met people from different tribes around their campfires. And you would share stories, you would share songs, you know, ceremonies, dance. It was just, when you got there, it was like medicine, just engulfing your whole body. I mean, it almost sounds like Standing Rock for you was a lot more than just fighting a pipeline. Yeah, it was. It was the, to the answer to my question for when I would say is, you know, like there's more to life than just paying bills and die. And going there, that proved it. Alexander Goodcane Milk even assumed a new name at Standing Rock. Aho, Dopa Imachapelo. Hi there, I am. Uh, my name is Dopa. Dopa is the number four in the Dakota language. It was his code name at Standing Rock, what he used when he talked with other protesters on walkie-talkies. Because while Dopa was there, he didn't just reconnect with his culture. He also fought the pipeline. He stood on the front lines, facing the security guards, the police. He stood with members of the Crow Nation, once bitter enemies of his people, now allies in this battle. He was a warrior, he says, a water protector. With Standing Rock, it was a spark that ignited all these fires in everybody's hearts. And now that fire has spread. Indigenous people are battling a pipeline in British Columbia, Others are standing up to pipelines in Louisiana and Virginia. And DOPA is still fighting pipelines in Wisconsin and Minnesota nearly two years after Standing Rock. I'm Dan Crocker, and this is Rivers of Oil, a podcast exploring why oil pipelines have suddenly become this outsized symbol in a battle between our world's reliance on oil and the risk that oil poses to our planet. In this episode, we'll take a look at why pipelines have become such a potent issue for so many Native American and indigenous people. But this isn't just a story about culture and identity. It's also a messy tale about land and treaties and a long, complicated, and often adversarial relationship with the U.S. government. 
a lot of that story has played out on one little parcel of land way up in northern Minnesota. So where are we? We are in Leonard, Minnesota. Um, if you look across or to the northeast here, that is actually the Red Lake land. My guide for the first part of this story is Marty Kobanes. He's Ojibwe, a member of the Red Lake Nation. So we're going to drive up here? Yep, we're going to drive up here now. He's taking me to a tiny piece of the reservation, just eight and a half acres outside the little farm town of Leonard, a patch of Red Lake land with four oil pipelines crossing it. We're going to turn, at the, turn left at the uh, dumpsters up there. Where should I park? You can park right in there. You can park right on top of the pipelines. So this is lines one, two, three, and four. Let's hop out. All right. There's an open grassy area surrounded by trees. An old trailer is slowly falling apart on the edge of the field, its door ajar. And there are little yellow signs that mark where four underground oil pipelines pass. The first of these pipelines was built back in 1949 after a big oil strike in Alberta, Canada. It stretches for 1,100 miles. And as oil production in Alberta grew, more pipelines followed. But, and this is one of those really messy stories, when those pipelines were built, the company had no idea they crossed Red Lake land. And neither did the tribe. They had ceded the land to the federal government. When nobody bought it, the government just gave it back. But they never told the tribe. It wasn't until about 10 years ago that the Bureau of Indian Affairs finally informed them. Red Lake started to negotiate with Enbridge over rights to continue pumping oil across this little chunk of swampland. So a few years ago, Marty and a few others opposed to pipelines decided it was time to act. We started a camp out here five years ago. It was late February. Not the brightest time of the year to start a camp. Because February in northern Minnesota is cold. But we, st- we did it, and we st- maintained the camp out here for over eight months. About 25 people came, some Red Lake tribal members, but also some people who had been protesting the Keystone XL pipeline. So, I mean, we were, we were kind of crude and rude and created, created our own toilets and outhouses, and, but we always maintained a, a sacred fire, and uh, we did it in a good way. You can still see remains of the outhouses back in the woods, and there are pieces of firewood hidden in the tall grass. So this is where the fire was. We had shelters to kind of block wind and places to sit around and, um, yeah. So what was the purpose? I mean, what was, what were you, what were you trying to accomplish with it? We were actually trying to shut down the pipelines at that point, and we're trying to get them to be removed off of the land. Here was their plan. They thought that by camping and protesting right on top of the pipelines, the company would be forced to shut the lines down. Marty, who's 50 now, showed me where they built a fence above the lines and cemented it into the ground. So I'm in there. Now they're getting loose. The idea was to lock themselves to this fence, to get arrested if they had to, and pressure Enbridge to stop pumping oil. And there's a PVC pipe coming out of there. Yep, with a lockdown mechanism inside. Oh, I see. So you put your, what would you put your arm in, like a pipe or something? Or Yep. Standing there, I was struck by how Marty's camp was kind of an early version of the pipeline protests we see now. Because this is a tactic protesters use pretty frequently. They make these devices to lock themselves to equipment or buildings in a way that can take a long time for police to cut them free. 
I mean, we were ready for if whoever came to try to break us up or try to invade us, we would have lockdown mechanisms. You know, so we were we were prepared and for whatever we needed to do. But in the end, their protests went largely ignored. Enbridge left them alone, and the tribal council took no action. So after about eight months, they left. And the pipelines were still there, pumping tens of millions of gallons of oil a day, silently, under Red Lake land. In the tribe's negotiations with Enbridge, they were starting to heat up. I'm walking into the Red Lake Nation's government center, and it's an amazing building. It's three stories tall, and it features a giant bald eagle on the front of the building. And you walk through the doors underneath the head, and either side there are wings spread across the top of the building. I wanted to ask the tribal chairman about those talks with Enbridge. I met him in his corner office. My name is Daryl Seeky, senior chairman. He's worked in the tribal government most of his adult life. He says at first, Enbridge offered $350,000 to settle the matter. The tribe countered with $20 million. It was really tough negotiations back and forth. I don't know how many times I'd get pissed off at him and tell him, I'll remove the lines if you don't want to agree with $20 million and you guys buy the land for the land exchange, or remove the lines. Remove those pipelines. Enbridge eventually agreed to pay the tribe $18.5 million to cover the use of the land since the first pipeline was built. The tribal council narrowly approved it, despite objections from tribal members like Marty Kobanes, who wanted those pipelines off Red Lake land. But they couldn't just make the deal on their own. They first had to get approval from the federal government. And when that approval stalled, the Red Lake Council a few months ago voted to back out of its deal with Enbridge. And then they completely reversed course. Not that long after reaching a deal for almost $20 million for a little chunk of swampy land, the tribe instead said, you know what, we not only don't want your money, we want those pipelines off our land. We had a resolution. I asked the council to pass a resolution that we oppose all pipelines. We want Enbridge to remove the pipelines. I think that's the end of it. Why? I'm just, could you explain why you, why you wanted that resolution passed to oppose all pipelines? Well, you know what? I went to Standing Rock. I delivered a flag, and uh, the tribe donated five thousand for their behalf. So I see what was going on, and the, the effects, the land, and the water, and. I just didn't think the pipeline is right for especially crossing our Indian lands. And that's indicative of this dramatic shift in Indian country over the past decade. Some tribes that just a few years ago were making multi-million dollar deals to allow pipelines to cross their land are now saying, no, no more pipelines. Part of what's causing that shift is pressure from tribal members like Marty Kobanes. Back on that eight-and-a-half-acre parcel of land, I asked him how difficult it was to say no to nearly $20 million. Because Red Lake is really poor, unemployment is high, and that money could go a long way toward addressing health, education, and infrastructure needs. Well, this land that we're standing on right now, this eight-and-a-half acres, is owned by the entire tribe, not by me or by anyone else individually. This is our land. Um, that our great 
great-great-grandfathers signed off on. And so for us, this land is, is sacred and that we shouldn't be selling it or, or giving it up. Land is also really important to tribes because it's tied to their sovereignty. That's a word you hear a lot in Indian country. Tribes are sovereign nations. Yes, the federal government relocated Native Americans to reservations, but on that land, for the most part, tribes govern themselves. And for Native Americans in northern Minnesota and elsewhere, the sacred land Marty talks about isn't just reservation land. Pipelines also pass through ancestral land, off of reservations, where tribes didn't totally give up control. When the U.S. government made treaties with Native people, the sale of land was not the only kind of right that was governed in treaties. This is Anton Troyer. And I'm a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, which means I teach the Ojibwe language as well as Ojibwe history and culture. And he says most of the treaties the U.S. government negotiated with the Ojibwe in the upper Midwest have clauses that allow for the use of that ancestral land. That said things like, the Indians shall retain the right of hunting, fishing, and gathering wild rice in a place of encampment on the tract hereby ceded in perpetuity so long as grasses grow and rivers flow. All of that meaning that even though Native people were selling land, they were retaining the right to hunt, fish, and gather on the land that they were selling. The government often ignored those provisions, but over the past 30 years, tribes have begun to assert those treaty rights. They have lawyers now, and many have revenue from casinos and other businesses that allows them to wage those fights. For some of the treaty areas in Minnesota, the courts haven't yet determined exactly what off-reservation rights tribes have retained. But to a lot of Native people, that doesn't even matter. To most tribal members and tribal governments, that's still Native land to which Native people have a harvest right. So putting pipelines through those areas... To many tribal people is a violation of and something that puts at great risk the resources that they were promised to have access to in perpetuity. I went to see some of that ancestral land, about an hour south of the Red Lake Reservation, where a road crosses the Mississippi River just a few miles from the headwaters. The Mississippi is just a little stream here. Yeah, right here it is. Just a small little stream. And I forgot to ask you, but mm-hmm. would you do me a favor and introduce yourself for me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's my uh, native name. It means uh, everlasting wind. Uh, my English name is Dawn Goodwin. Dawn is 47. She's a member of the White Earth Band of Ojibwe. This is where I grew up, and we have a berry patch not too far down the road that I've been to since I was in my mom's womb. So, This is where several oil pipelines tunnel under the Mississippi on their way to refineries in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. It's also where Enbridge wants to build a bigger replacement for its Line 3 oil pipeline, one of the four lines that cross those eight-and-a-half acres of Red Lake land. Line 3 is also the pipeline that has leaked a lot of oil in the past, including the record big spill in Grand Rapids, about an hour and a half east of here. Goodwin works at the White Earth Tribal College, and she's put thousands of miles at her car, driving to hearings and public meetings to speak out against Line 3. She says a spill wouldn't just impact the land and water, it would impact her culture. 
the culture that her ancestors tried to preserve in those treaties, because so much of what makes her Ojibwe, things like harvesting wild rice, is connected to that land and water. The best I can explain is we're a living culture. It's not that we, we did these things long ago. We still do these things. And we're trying to reclaim who we are because so many of our people are hurt and they need healing. And that's where they find it, with their culture and their spirituality. It's really tied to the environment and the water, huh? Yes, yeah. Yep. And so you need clean water, clean land to practice the culture? Correct. And you don't think you can have that with pipelines? I'm not saying that. Um, um, there are pipelines and we still have clean water. Um, so I can't say that. I'm not saying I'm anti-pipeline. But what I am saying is we need to transition and putting a, another corridor in somewhere with tar sand is not the right route to go. Uh, we need to transition away from fossil fuels. It's complicated for Dawn. She acknowledges that her culture is still strong, that water is still clean. But she says a spill from a new pipeline could change that, especially one that could also carry tar sands oil, which can sink into lakes and rivers. But there's also something bigger going on. This is more than just a fight for land and water. It's a fight for identity. Ojibwe professor Anton Troyer says to understand why this protest movement can be so powerful for Native people, you need a basic understanding of some pretty heavy history. You know, Native folks have had 500 pretty rough years. And there were impossible times. Troyer works a lot to educate mainstream society about Native Americans. Case in point, one of his latest books, and he's written over a dozen, is called Everything You Wanted to Know About Indians But Were Afraid to Ask. The story of America's gain and growth and building from sea to shining sea was at the same time necessarily the story of a systematic, you know, destruction and dismantling of indigenous sovereignty, land control, identity, culture, language. All of it has been under assault in so many different ways. And even today, you know, we deal not just with the legacy of that, but all of the internalized historical trauma and, and social and economic malaise that accompany all of it. And so it's tough, you know, it, it's tough being Native. But he says the protest movement that has emerged around pipelines has provided a way for Native people to come together and find a collective voice around principles of justice and protecting the environment. And he says that's powerful. And so I see, you know, some of this protest effort as um, something that provides a definition. Here's what it means to be Native, to say that water is life, to say that we are brave enough to say enough is enough, to corporations that continually subordinate our long-term health and environment to some short-term financial gain. Enough is enough to the government. We're not your Indians anymore, you know? And I think all of that defines, helps define 
what it means to be Native and provides a source of pride and engagement. And Troyer believes no one did more to galvanize Native American opposition to pipelines than Energy Transfer Partners, the company that built the line that led to the Standing Rock protests. Their use of, you know, private security firms and attack dogs and, you know, the tear gassing and the huge long lines of folks with batons and stuff, it it seemed pretty clearly to, to be unjust to a lot of people. Since then, Troyer has led cultural awareness training for Enbridge and law enforcement agencies that might be involved in protests in Minnesota. But what happened at Standing Rock really stuck with people. Pretty much everyone I have talked to over the past couple years who is fighting pipelines, Native American and non-Native alike, has invoked the protests there and the response. And that includes pipeline companies. Because in northern Minnesota, there's already a lot of oil flowing through Indian country. There are the four pipelines cutting across that tiny piece of Red Lake land. Those pipelines and two additional ones also cross two more Ojibwe reservations, the Leech Lake and the Fond du Lac. And now Enbridge is working to replace Line 3. But when Enbridge first started work on the plan several years ago, the Leech Lake Band told them, no, we don't want you to build another pipeline across our land. And Enbridge said, okay. So, I mean, that's, you know, one major change in our project. And that, that preferred route that we developed added mileage, added cost. This is Paul Eberth. Director, Line 3 Replacement and Strategic Initiatives at Enbridge. One of my roles is uh, locally to um, uh, lead a, a team of people at our company that are engaged uh, with the tribes uh, locally to, um, to improve our relations. Eberth says Enbridge has made several changes to its Line 3 project at the request of tribes. First, they proposed a totally new pipeline corridor, one that was longer and more expensive than the original, to avoid both the Fond du Lac and Leech Lake reservations. I fundamentally believe it was respecting the tribal sovereignty of, of Leech Lake and their decision to not allow the rebuilding of Line 3 through the reservation. Enbridge also moved the pipeline route farther away from a wild rice lake on the White Earth Reservation, and it's working with the Fond du Lac Band to conduct a survey of important cultural sites along the proposed route. That's a big deal for us. Uh, we've never done that before. I'm not aware of any other companies locally doing that, employing the tribe to do um, a, a traditional cultural property uh, survey for you know a long linear infrastructure project. But while the company's preferred route for Line 3 doesn't pass through any reservations, it still would pass through a lot of ancestral land, treaty land. Paul Eberth knows no matter what they do, short of not building a new pipeline at all, there are many Native American people Enbridge is not going to be able to appease. You know, in the end, I think it's likely that not everybody will be satisfied. Uh, but, you know, we're going to try. I mean, we're going to keep trying. And Paul Eberth says Enbridge is also trying hard to prevent another mass protest like Standing Rock, which takes us back to the beginning of the story, to Alexander Goodcane Milk. DOPA didn't stop after Standing Rock. Last summer, he went to Wisconsin, just across the border with Minnesota, where work on Line 3 was already underway. It was great, too, because we had the fog. Out of nowhere, there's fog that came to hide us as we were getting there. He covered his face below his eyes in a black bandana, tucked his long black hair underneath a black ball cap, and climbed onto a big yellow excavator at a construction site. It was just after dawn. Got to the site and ran up to there, and I had my lockbox that I created. He locked his hands inside a metal tube and then locked that to the excavator. 
On the tube were the words courage and resist, written in colorful graffiti. The goal was to make it tough for police to cut him free, to block construction for as long as possible. And all the while, people with him, other water protectors as they call themselves, they streamed it on Facebook. And it was doing that live stream, you know, it was just like my heart was pumping and going and going and going. It's like, okay, okay. Stand strong! <laughs> we peacefully ask Enbridge to stop line three! You cannot drink oil, please! And then, more than an hour into the video, officers moved in on Dopa and the woman next to him, filming. You're under arrest. I can tell you he was going to be safe. Well, his hands are locked down here in this equipment. That's why I'm here to be a witness. Okay. Can you come down? Because you're under arrest. And I will stand here and protect him as long as I can. All right, guys, they're going to come up here and take me. I'm with you, brother. And the video ends. Afterwards, Dopa says it took a while, but they eventually cut him free and arrested him. From Enbridge's perspective, Paul Eberth says they handled that protest well, along with several others. None of the protesters got hurt. Uh, no one in the workforce got hurt. Uh, project stoppages were relatively minimal. And uh, in the end, you know, we were able to safely install the pipeline. Dopa says he's tried to stop the pipeline legally. He's gone to big public hearings conducted by a state judge in Minnesota. But he feels like it didn't make a difference, like his voice wasn't being heard. And, you know, it, and it's, it's the strangest thing is when we when I go to these meetings, it's like. It's like walking to into a uh, to an old time store and all these just white people are just looking at you like you're going to steal. You know, or you're walking into a church and they all just look at you like you don't belong, like they're disgusted with just seeing you there and it hurts. But it's empowering to lock himself to machinery, to take a stand, to get arrested to maybe even encourage others to go to the front lines. He says that's how he was first inspired to go to Standing Rock. And Standing Rock is still inspiring others to fight oil pipelines. I mean, Standing Rock to me is a Selma moment for the environmental movement and a Selma moment for the native, you know, for the native movement in this millennium. This is Winona LaDuke. And I'm uh, Anishinaabe from the White Earth Reservation. I'm Bear Clan, and I am the executive director of Honor the Earth. And if you recognize her name, it's probably because she ran for vice president, twice, with Ralph Nader on the Green Party ticket in 1996 and 2000. She's 58 now, a Harvard-trained economist, and she's worked on Native environmental issues most of her life. 25 years ago, she founded a nonprofit called Honor the Earth with the folk rock group The Indigo Girls. And for the last five years, she's been fighting proposed oil pipelines near her White Earth Reservation. She says Standing Rock was a defining moment for Native people. You know, we remembered who we were. We remembered that we were courageous people. We found that people who we did not know came to stand with us because they saw, too, what, what had happened out there. Now LaDuke is helping to organize resistance to Line 3. You know, I will tell you, if they issue that permit, I'm preparing to stand on the land and to stand on the line. And I will stand there with thousands of other people, and I will stand there. You know, because I don't think Minnesota wants a civil war or a ground war over this pipeline. That's why, in the end, there may not be a lot that pipeline companies can do to satisfy most Native Americans. Because for many people, 
This is a moment, a moment to stand up and say enough is enough, not anymore. The only way to avoid conflict might be to avoid Indian country altogether. But that still leaves an issue that's impossible to avoid, an issue that pushed this whole new wave of activism against pipelines to a national level, an issue that's much bigger than pipelines. Because when it comes down to it, the fight isn't really over pipelines. It's about the oil those pipelines carry and what happens when that oil is burned in our cars, in the planes we fly. It's about climate change. I do believe that climate change is occurring. And is caused by human sources, including the burning of fossil fuels? I believe that human sources are contributing to climate change. Including the burning of fossil fuels? Including the burning of fossil fuels. Thank you. That's next time on Rivers of Oil. Rivers of Oil is a production of Minnesota Public Radio News. It's produced by me, Dan Crocker, and Julie Seipel. Bill Wareham is our editor. Veronica Rodriguez engineered this episode. And Cody Nelson is our associate producer. He also composed our theme music. Meg Martin is managing editor of Projects and Podcasts. Thanks also to Johnny Vince Evans for all his help mixing. We've been covering the story of pipelines in Minnesota for NPR News, and we'll continue doing that. If you'd like to follow the developments in the Line 3 story, find us at nprnews.org.